0: So it's just like, okay, let's just have a real talk, real talk, Uh, no censorship.
1: Welcome to the Boiling Frogs Post roundtable. We've got a lively discussion planned for you today, and we're glad that you're watching. Joining me from Japan is James Corbett, who contributes to Boiling Frogs Post with his fabulous eye-opener video series, and, of course, uh, operates at CorbettReport.com. Sibel Edmonds, the publisher of Boiling Frogs Post, and, of course, the author of uh, a powerful book called Classified Woman, joins us as usual. I'm Peter B. Collins in San Francisco, where I operate PeterBCollins.com and contribute the Processing Distortion Podcast to Boiling Frogs Post. And our special guest today is Andrew Gavin Marshall, a contributor here at Boiling Frogs Post, where he does the weekly Empire, Power, and People podcast. He also is the project manager of the People's Book Project, head of the geopolitics division of the Hampton Institute, and is the research director of Occupy.com's Global Power Project. Andrew it's great to have you with us today.
2: Great to be with you.
1: We were all struck by a recent podcast that you uh, posted at Boiling Frogs Post uh, regarding your thoughts on anarchy, socialism, libertarianism, and I have to say that as an unreconstructed liberal, uh, I found it all very interesting, and I have always been open to exploring uh, alternatives to the systems that we have and I think that there are many positive attributes um, of, of what is called anarchism but first I think we need to define what you mean by that because for many people the broad definition of anarchism is, is chaos, it's uh, every person for his, his or herself and uh, I've learned from people who call themselves anarchists that uh, that's not really the case. So. Why don't we start there with you defining your perception of anarchism in today's terminology?
2: Uh, Well, anarchism comes from the Greek word anarchos, which means to be without authority. That is sort of the fundamental concept of anarchy, to be without authority. Uh, It's probably the political philosophy with the most variation possible and allowed. Uh, So you have Anarchist groups and uh, different sort of ideologies across the spectrum, uh, but ultimately I think that anarchy is about first of all questioning the legitimacy of all hierarchically uh, institutionalized structures, all power structures to question the, le- the legitimacy and if it's not legitimate to oppose and make that uh, structure obsolete and uh, anarchist principles involve Um, collective organization um, horizontal organization uh, from the ground up not to have hierarchies not to have uh, top-down structures but to have bottom-up collective truly democratic structures as a means of organizing society in that sense I think that anarchy is ultimately the true definition of democracy since it's from the bottom-up instead of a top-down imposed approach uh, Mm -hmm. to what we call democracy But uh, anarchism, I think, and uh, I think fundamentally, is about uh, not only opposing authority and authority structures, but of creating uh, a new system, a new uh, social order from the bottom up, which makes the prevailing one obsolete. And you can have uh, various anarchist thoughts and also actions Um, which are uh, representations of anarchism. So, for example, when workers in a factory organize and decide to run the factory themselves, removing the perceived need for management, that's anarchism. Um, Whether or not the workers identify that as anarchism um, or their beliefs as anarchism, that is an anarchistic act in and of itself. Uh, and that's kind of a fundamental principle for uh, in what's called industrial democracy. So you can have political democracy where you hold elections and elect people. Industrial democracy uh, never made it that far for some reason um, in the workplace, in the economic sphere, where we allowed uh, tyrannies that we call corporations to dominate that spectrum uh, while they let us eat our cake and holding elections annually. But uh, democracy or rather anarchy, uh, is to be experienced and sought in all spheres of human activity and interaction. Uh, So it's not simply in terms of thought, but in terms of um, actions that people take, which uh, represents anarchy or what we call anarchy. And you're also correct in pointing out that it has long been associated with chaos uh, and disorder. Uh, one of the original philosophers of anarchism, uh, Pierre Proudhon, uh, said that anarchy is order, not chaos. And I think that that's correct. And I believe I do believe that anarchy is order precisely because authority is chaos. We live in a world dominated by authority structures, no matter where or what structure you identify, and we live in a world of chaos, war, poverty, destruction, violence, uh, and. Uh, imperialism. That's not a, war, a world of order. That's a world of structured uh, and destructive chaos. So, anarchy is the opposite of that, both in approach and objective.
1: And, Andrew, I wanted to uh, do a little show and tell here, because recently, for me, a window into uh, contemporary anarchists is this book written by Scott Crow. And it depicts or uh, recounts uh, his activities in New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina, the flood, the failure of FEMA, the corporatized response to the disaster with uh, Blackwater soldiers patrolling the streets. And there was chaos in New Orleans. And the anarchists brought their own sense of order. And as you have alluded to. It was a a collective approach. Uh, They went back to Texas for, uh, you know, extra supplies, um, but they operated uh, without a hierarchy. Their focus was delivering the services that the the city, the state, and the federal government uh, failed to provide to those who were stranded uh, after the levees broke and the floods uh, uh, just inundated the city. Pardon me. And so, Scott Crow, to me, is a very interesting, he's also quite articulate, and I recommend to our viewers uh, his book, Black Flags and Windmills. But to me, it it really uh, gave me a fresh look at anarchism as an appropriate response to the failure of government. And I think most people can easily identify that on the scale of New Orleans post-Katrina, But we're looking at, in terms of the United States, a government that is failing on a daily basis. And so I'm interested in alternative approaches. And I think that you, in in your original podcast, articulated a very interesting continuum uh, from socialism to libertarianism to anarchism. And each has some very valuable attributes.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And um, the reference you made to New Orleans is uh, interesting. I didn't actually know about that at all, but it reminded me of Occupy Sandy following uh, Hurricane Sandy in New York. Occupy Sandy was this spontaneous collective grouping that emerged in response to the hurricane, which sought to uh, connect people, figure out what people needed in which areas to get those supplies and to get them out there and to transport all this stuff and to actually directly help people in need because the aid agencies and again FEMA and other agencies were incapable uh, or unwilling or both does it matter um, of actually providing what was needed at that time and Occupy Sandy was so successful that Um, At their debriefings of what was going on, it was attended by all the other governmental agencies because they didn't know anything. They didn't know what was going on. They probably didn't care that much. But here you had a ground up um, spontaneous organization which was just facilitated by people in the community uh, who were interested and uh, mobilized by the disaster to um, organize and Facilitate what they could to help, and they were very successful at that. And I think that's just another example of that. But um, getting to your actual point of uh, uh, sort of tracing this uh, evolution, I guess, of thought and with socialism and libertarianism, uh, libertarian uh, as a word and as a concept actually came out of anarchism uh, in the 19th century. So there's a word or a term which is given to anarchists, it's kind of synonymous with it, which is libertarian socialist. And it may sound like a contradiction, uh, but that's where the term originally comes from. It was only in the, I guess, the early to mid-20th century that the word libertarian uh, became associated more with a specific economic philosophy that came out of places like the Mises Institute and elsewhere. Um, But uh, I'll actually sort of deflect to a quote I have here from Mikhail Bakunin, who is a major anarchist philosopher and also a major challenger of uh, uh, Marx in his day, which is that liberty without socialism is privilege, injustice. Socialism without liberty is slavery and brutality. Uh, So it's about understanding that um, liberty and socialism are not opposing concepts, but rather interconnected and interdependent concepts. For true socialism um, to emerge, to be relevant, uh, it needs libertarianism uh, to ensure liberty. For libertarianism uh, to reach its potential, it needs socialism uh, to lay the groundwork, that they have to operate uh, not one and then the other, but concurrently and together, that they are uh, mutually reinforcing concepts. Uh, And I think that's sort of a a a main issue, um, I presume, of what I was saying uh, previously. But also, just in terms of um, moving forward and finding ways to build bridges between um, activists and philosophies and people organizing today, because there are so many divisions and they often become really uh, extreme and. uh, this gets in the way of moving forward, but I think that this is an area where you can actually start to build bridges and an understanding between different groups. Mm-hmm. Sibel, uh,
0: both of you provided great examples, and but those were like circumstantial examples and also things within a, a short period of time. So if we look at what you just described, and that is anarchism, what kind of example? Uh, Will be able to find that would show anarchism working in a more long-term situation rather than catastrophe. Because I agree with that. Same, the same thing happened in Turkey with the earthquake in 1999, and one of the amazing things was, oh, even the animosity between the Greeks and Turks, which has been you know going on for a long time, disappeared. So uh, they, they joined the relief ef- efforts and, 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 I mean, you just saw this incredible solidarity, okay? And, uh, well, of course, six months later, nine months later, things went back to where they were before. Uh, another example would be the uh, Occupation or Occupy Wall Street movement, you know, started with this really good, cohesive, I mean, really energized and then, what started taking place in long term was people started getting more fragmented, and the hijacking by some of the power establishment uh, NGOs started taking place. Uh, so, while we can give examples in with with uh, you know um, short term or situational uh, circumstantial uh, examples, can you think of anything that would uh, illustrate how it would work? in a longer period of time in a larger context?
2: Uh, Well, we don't have very long examples to go by precisely because we don't live in an anarchistic society Um, but there are examples historically looking at such as the Spanish revolution where you did see anarchist movements develop and successfully um, handle the maintenance of society quite efficiently, I might add, Um, and and this also took place during the early years and even predating the Russian Revolution. Um, In both cases, the anarchist movements were destroyed from forces within and without. Uh, In Russia, you had the Bolsheviks, um, who literally went out and killed a lot of the anarchists, uh, as well as the Western-funded... uh, groups inside Russia uh, seeking to establish a liberal state capitalist society. They were also destroying the um, anarchist groupings. In Spain, you had uh, Western societies, the Soviet Union, and all of Europe's fascists um, collectively. Uh, working and competing and uh, fighting each other as well as killing uh, and destroying the anarchist revolution inside of Spain, which did uh, show significant progress uh, the city of Barcelona especially was run entirely by anarchist collectives and uh, in a very successful manner until of course Franco came around but uh, the fact that um, anarch- attempts at long-term or much larger scale anarchist projects have failed is not an indication that they can't succeed because after all you can make the same claim about literally anything. We don't live in an actual capitalist society but you can uh, make the... You, it's challenging to make the claim that capitalism um, as a sort of at its base concept Uh, is impossible because here we are, because this isn't necessarily a capitalist system. Uh, The same case can be made for socialism or democracy. Uh, Judging by what we have at present and saying that democracy obviously doesn't work, um, why bother trying to move towards democracy, uh, is, I think, sort of a flawed approach instead of going towards looking at what are the Uh, successes and failures of democracy and what is democracy fundamentally and how could you move towards that? Um, That, I think, is more of a long-term approach. Anarchism is, um, like you said, uh, you see it in these examples that are very much in the short term and, oddly enough, in reaction to catastrophes and uh, situations of great need, which I think is kind of an indication in and of itself. But um, there's questions that have to be asked and answered, which we as a society, as a people, have, haven't spent um, really any time on, uh, such as how can we utilize technology to um, make things like uh, basic services and necessities uh, being taken care of. Our society shouldn't be geared towards just employment and jobs, and that that is the point of life, and you work, and then you make money, and then you die. Uh, and congratulations, that's life. Um, Anarchism will have to find ways to address all of these necessities. Food, shelter, um, taking care of cities, communities, cleaning, I mean, what about janitorial services? Who does that in an anarchistic society? These are questions that need to be asked and answers that need to be sought, but the only way that we can actually figure this out is if we start having the conversation, but also if we start... Um, trying through trial and error, that's ultimately how we'll figure out long term um, solutions to these things. I don't think there's uh, inside the anarchist community, there are incredible divisions. Uh, along different philosophies and beliefs and you will have people saying that you know Proudhon was right and we should only follow his ideas and others will cite other philosophers there's all this sort of incessant um, and i think irrelevant infighting i think ultimately if you really want uh... to figure out which one is quote unquote right and i don't think there is one um... it's just a matter of trying out new things and seeing what works what adapts and what evolves um... over the long term And that's where we can see um, looking at the successes and failures of other groups, other communities in the world. And we can already see some of this um, in different resistance movements uh, around the world. And even in the um, responses to catastrophes, you see examples of what works. Why does that work in a a situation like that? And why can't we sort of replicate that in times of quote-unquote peace and order? These are, I think, really important questions. I don't have the answers to them, but um, I think that ultimately trial and error is where we'll figure that out.
3: James, you want to chime in here? Well, Sabelle, I do uh, certainly appreciate the question that you, you raise, and it's an important one, but I think that the answer to it is a lot easier than a lot of people might think. And I, I guess the straight no BS answer is to say that no, no one here uh, in this conversation, no one listening to this conversation, no one on the planet is going to have the answer for how to act proscriptively in every possible situation. The creation of totalizing ideologies is, uh, is I think, a type of virus that has unfortunately infected our our political consciousness and and much to our detriment. Um, And uh, let's just take the microcosmic example, because it's always easier to see in the microcosm. Uh, Andrew poses the question, who's going to clean the toilets in the anarchistic society? That's a very good question. But I think that the answer can be located in, for example, the the idea of the household. There are certain households in which, uh, you know, the mother will clean the toilet or the father will clean the toilet or the kids will clean the toilet or some combination thereof will clean the toilet. And then there are other households where I guess they probably don't clean the toilet. And uh, and in an anarchist society, you know what? All of those might be viable options when we extend that out to society and to all of the other tasks in society. The point of anarchism, I think, and I completely agree with what Andrew was articulating in his podcast, is that this is not an ideology. It is um, to use the phrase that that Andrew brought up, it wasn't me, everyone, so you don't have to squawk at me with your parroting pop and jays of popular protest that, squawk, he used the free market word, squawk, Um, Andrew himself said, free market of of ideas is what is needed, because it is not from me, it is not from you, it is not from any individual out there that we're going to come up with the answer to how to organize society. It is through the peaceful, voluntary interactions of tens, hundreds, thousands, millions, eventually billions of people on this planet that we will uh, come to not just one answer, but many different answers in different contexts that will hold for different periods of times for different reasons. For me, the entire issue, I know people want to see some sort of penis measuring contest of people battling out their political ideologies here. That is not how I would frame this debate at all, that what the conversation that we're having. I think that the remarkable thing, exactly as uh, Andrew was saying, is that there are Incredible bridge building opportunities here if we understand this issue at its fundamental level. And for people who are incredulous at that idea, I I think I agree with, with, for example, I agree with Andrew on on maybe 50 to 60% of his political and economic thought, probably 80 or 90% of his proscriptive ideas for what uh, society needs to do, but 100% on the substantial issue. The substantial issue is not one of political ideology, it is not one of economic organization. It is an ethical construct, nothing more, nothing less. And it boils down to a very simple principle, the idea that I respect you and, uh, as an individual and your right to freely and voluntarily associate with others in the way that you want, and I expect the same respect in return. That's it, and if there is any argument against that, I have yet to hear it, or at least any argument that makes sense to me. So that—that's—that's that's all I'm arguing is for that simple moral principle of voluntary association, and upon that principle, we can erect any edifice of any political organization, any social uh, compact, any economic system that you want. Uh, if you want to go off and build your Zeitgeist resource-based economy, flying Marxist robot city. Awesome. Go for it. Have fun. If you want to make your socialist factory worker paradise, go for it. If you want to subject yourself to something calling itself government that presumes to have authority over you, you go ahead. It's perfectly in your uh, right. Just don't expect me to go along with that and we'll be fine. There's there's absolutely no debate at that point. So for me, that's all it boils down to is the fundamental principle of voluntary association.
1: Very interesting.
3: Andrew, you want to respond to that?
2: Sure. I mean, I think you nailed it on the head there. But um, the idea of a, (laughs) to reappropriate the phrase, a free market of ideas, I think is uh, really tapping into the most valuable resource we have as a species, which is the species. Um, If you compare the sheer number, of people in this world, which has surpassed 7 billion people, to the number of people in this world who dominate it, to the number of institutions, which I might add are hierarchically organized and structured, uh, which dominate the ideology and actions of um, our society. Uh, Look at the ways in which ideas rise through institutions to the top to become dominant ideologies. This takes a great deal of time. This takes years, decades, generations. And uh, these structures are so large, and of course, being hierarchical, they function from the top down. So to respond to changes and desires from the bottom up, which is to say to respond to democratic Uh, needs and desires, that of the people, it takes a great deal of time uh, for the institutional structure of society to adapt. And it only does so begrudgingly. Um, It only does so uh, with a great deal of force and pressure. Uh, And this is what we call reform. And it takes forever for very little results comparatively. Uh, And I think that that's not a very efficient way to run society. Because while we can't have actual good things come through reform processes, you know, enhanced rights for different groups of people, um, laws which recognize rights, civil liberties, etc. I mean, I I don't think it's legitimate to necessarily say that um, all reform efforts are um, uh, faulty or wrong. Uh, There are good things that obviously come through. Uh, but it takes so much time. And at the, our current trajectory as a species, where we're sort of headed for the cliff like the dodo, board, uh, dodo bird, you know, running as fast as we can towards extinction, I don't think we have the time to wait um, for reform to catch up to the needs of the population of Earth, uh, not to mention the Earth itself. And I think that the resource of human potential and the creative capacity of many is something that has largely gone untapped. I mean, just the fact that one billion people, one in seven people on this planet live in urban slums um, is a pretty startling statistic, let alone the fact that half of humanity lives on less than $2 a day. Um, Again, a startling uh, concept. These are people who essentially have to live day to day. Um, struggling to eat and survive the day. Uh, Imagine if we had a society in which um, the basic necessities of life were not a daily concern, and therefore you have 3.5 billion to 7 billion people Um, who you could tap for intellectual resources, for ideas. If you take a group of 100 people and sit them down and ask a question about, come up with ideas of how to solve this problem, chances are you're going to get a lot more uh, interesting and creative responses and possibilities than if you sat down by yourself and said how am I going to solve all the problems and impose this upon other people and convince them to acknowledge that this is the one right way to do this that's not an easy task but a hundred people in a room twenty people in a room even just five people uh, sitting down together to solve a problem are likely to have more and better ideas because each one of them is an individual capable of ideas, but together they're capable of so much more and capable of actually enacting these ideas. And I think the creative capacity of many will always outweigh the uh, individual initiative of one. And I think that's sort of what you were getting at in terms of a free market of ideas and a voluntary association. And I think you nailed the head on that one.
1: Uh, I just wanted to offer a comment to Sabelle that um, on May 2nd, a group of former Occupy activists are forming a new political party in the United States called the After Party. They're holding a a launch event in Detroit, and their manifesto really does uh, line up with some of the descriptions of anarchism that uh, we're discussing here today. So I'm intrigued by what they're doing, and uh, I see it as a Uh, a positive extension of the Occupy effort from a couple of years ago. Andrew, I want to talk a little bit about terminology because the, you know, the term anarchism is poisoned in the minds of many people just as liberalism and and socialism are. Uh, And and to be fair, libertarianism to some people is is an off-putting term. But behind each of these labels are some excellent ideas, and if we if we take the uh, the negative uh, uh, connotations away from them, uh, we could all benefit. We, there are things that we can learn, and so, for example, we've seen the last couple of years in, in the U.S. the the right uh, attacking Obama and claiming that he is a socialist because he has permanently corporatized the delivery of health care in this country. <laughs> and also, we, we have people who abuse the term libertarian uh, to suggest that you can be a racist rancher and not pay your grazing fees. Uh, so I, I'm just struck by the way the, the, the power structure demonizes terms in order to keep people away from ideas that it fears. And (laughs) I think that that's one of the things I'd like to see this conversation overcome to help the people who are watching this understand that, you know, many of these isms are uh, cast in a negative light because they directly threaten the oligarchs and others who are in power today.
2: Absolutely. The uh, best response to this type of question is always to quote George Orwell. Political language is designed to make lies sound truthful, murder respectable, and to give a feeling of solidity to pure wind. Language is very important, not only in the understanding of power and the understanding of world and communication, but in the application of power. And... uh, Political language obstructs meanings and uh, uh, sort of undermines um, understandings. And this is both in how the powerful use language, but also how they demonize and obstruct language. Um, And I think the isms come into that in a pretty uh, strong way. Uh, Just as the fact that anarchism is so demonized, when I first started... Uh, the first times I heard the word anarchism and uh, met people who called themselves anarchists, I just kind of wrote them off as crazy people. I thought that you know they just want a society of chaos and violence, and that doesn't sound very appealing to me. Um, but that's because I ultimately didn't know anything about anarchism or its history or the word or the meaning. Um, and when you, excuse me, when you actually start to look into these things, you. Uh, find that these words uh, do have a lot of meaning behind them but that it's I think necessary to break these associations that we have. I've heard some people um, just in conversation suggest that the word anarchism should be abandoned altogether because it's just too tainted to um, refurbish. But my problem with that is that abandoning the word almost feels like abandoning the history and there's so much in anarchist history to learn from uh, both failures and successes uh, though mostly failures but um, there's so much there to look at and to learn from that I think it would be a disservice to what anarchism is to simply abandon the word because it's inconvenient. Um, Instead I think that it's necessary to discuss what these things actually mean what these words actually mean so that they can be reappropriated um and they can regain their uh, original or even better yet a new uh meaning which um is more true to the original intent and uh, regardless of which ism that is i think this is something that um needs to be done uh for all of these uh uh, terms and words, and like you mentioned, the example of Obama being called a socialist. Every time I heard that, I would just cringe. You know, it was just like, uh, okay, that would be it would be at least a little more um, reassuring if the man was a socialist. But <laughs> if anything, he's a corporate socialist. And if anything, uh, as you mentioned, the healthcare system, where that was when the word was being used the most, that's the best example of his corporate socialism. Uh, and, um, and everything the man has ever done is an example of how he is not a socialist um, and how he is not any of what I would call good-isms. But uh, yeah, that's a problem. And because these words are used and propagated in the media, um, people just accept them. And so they can call him a socialist. But if you ask these people what is socialism, then I don't think you're going to get a very coherent answer. Um, and that's also frequently the case with anarchism, but that was also a, the change of the meaning of the word anarchism has been kind of a process over the course of the 20th century, and I think that initially it really began with police forces um, in the United States, in Argentina, across Europe, um, that were very concerned about anarchists, militants, and activists, mm-hmm. um, because uh, Anarchists were sort of at the forefront of revolutionary movements around the world at that time, and that sort of sparked the international coordination of major police forces across Europe and into the U.S., which was um, sort of unprecedented at that time. And uh, police forces domestically and around the world began demonizing anarchists as violent extremists, uh, bent on creating chaos. And over time, that kind of uh, garnered a lot of uh, attention. And um, eventually, the two terms, anarchy and chaos, became just sort of merged in the collective mind of people. That has to be challenged, I think, uh, if we're to um, actually have uh, meaningful understanding and um, actions of anarchism in the present and future. Mm -hmm. Sybel?
0: Oh, uh, no, I mean, I do agree with, with the notion. What I'm having a hard time to understand is, again, I talked about the context or the period of time. But again, with some of the examples we talked about inside a factory, okay, we have a group of workers. But when we start looking at a much larger, the masses, when all these things actually have to work interconnected, because whether it's the factory or it's the, the janitorial services on the street, that is the part that I'm having a hard time uh, seeing. Uh, because in my real life example, for example, okay, I'm going to give one example. During my university years, my graduate degree, uh, the professor would say, okay, let's form groups, brainstorm, and here I want you to come up with this particular solutions. and." And a group of five or seven or eight people, we would be talking about it. There would be disagreement. But usually what happened naturally was some people wanted to have someone or some two people to take charge. Otherwise, we felt like we were not getting anywhere because we do have different personalities in life. You know, we we did a program, a show here about You know, maybe we mistitled it, saying why people are so stupid. We were talking about why 90% of people are not paying attention, you know, to certain issues, or they are not becoming activists, or they are not reacting. And we kept searching for an answer for that, right? Because we said, well, what is it? Well, we are looking at society with all types of people, okay? I mean, you have people who are absolutely self-centered, but also you're looking at the dilemma of big fish, little fish, and it seems to be the gradual conclusion of everything, you know, the the type A personalities, the the leadership type versus, let's say, the bullies in a school that they become territorial. How do you go about sorting that when you put it in some of the context, in real-life context, you know, another example of my, you know, I gave an example of the university, but let's say in a company, all these engineers programmers would be sitting around the table for days and days and days and they would end up fighting with each other not being able to bring it to conclusion you know having something that most people or most of the group agrees with and at that point they would have either the CEO or the COO or the CTO come and he would take everybody's and and, and then at the end everyone was happy up until that point it was the struggle in the end after discussing all the ideas they wanted to have it was as if they wanted to have the central figure to come put it together because well everybody thought you know each person thought my idea is the best idea you know my way is the best way yet there needs to be a the, the group decision combining maybe elements of these ideas but even for that to take place it ended up naturally going to the space where they needed to have this structure, meaning I'm not talking about the bossing, I'm going to take your ideas. Saying, well, how about this? How about this compromise? Then they will be shaking heads. So what I'm trying to say is with all the psychology of, you know, people, the different types of personality, which makes it great because we need all kinds of people, you know, there, 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 there is a, there is a role, there is a part for every kind of person. Yet it seems to be, even when you have that Freedom. Okay, let's do it together, collectively, bottom up. The group leads itself to the point saying, "Well, we brought it up to this point. Now we need that implementation or the final decision making. Otherwise, it keeps getting to be divided or the confrontations or, you know, in some cases, people quitting in the company." And and I spent like five years with that. This is this is this is the this is the struggle. Uh, that I'm facing when I'm looking at the issue. And what would you say to that, Andrew? Or James? Or Peter?
1: (laughs) Well, let's go to Andrew first. Go ahead.
2: Um, Short answer? I have no idea. That's (laughs) a huge question. And it's one I certainly don't know the answer to. But in your previous uh, comment, you referenced circumstances. And in terms of um, referencing... uh, anarchist actions which occurred in specific circumstances and that they were successful but within those confined circumstances and within those situations. And I think that your example of um, working with these people uh, in school, in companies, these are also their own specific circumstances. And we happen to, within the Western society, uh, be essentially from birth raised to... um, Uh, support, idolize, respect and adhere to authority. So when we're put in a group of people, the first question is who has authority? Uh, Because we don't know how to actually function collectively. That's not something that we were raised with, that's that's not a principle that is fundamental in our society. And it's not something that we're familiar with, so it seems scary and it seems chaotic. And certainly to just kind of throw us into that situation, you could it can frequently and frequently does lead to chaotic situations like those you described. Um, But I think if you were to say go to an indigenous uh, community whether in the United States, Canada, or basically anywhere across Africa where there is a very strong collective, um, cooperative culture and history and you ask them to solve a problem as a group. I think they would be far more successful um, than we would be uh, in our present situation because of the context of, because of the cultural context and the history um, that these circumstances provide. So, in that sense, I I don't know what the answers are um, to figuring out how to do that. Do we um, have a process whereby uh, some groups will choose to elect a leader that represents their view? And find some ways uh, to keep that power in check. What does that power constitute? Um, These are really important questions. Would that work at all? Or can there be certain ways to uh, organize and make decisions um, based upon consensus as a group? Uh, If somebody disagrees, uh, then they simply leave the group. Um, Like James mentioned, sort of voluntary association. You only participate in what you want to participate in. But there's still things that need to be done. You know, uh, again, going back to the scrubbing of the toilets, I I don't, you know, that's kind of my job in the house uh, here, but uh, it's not something I really enjoy doing. Um, And it's not something I imagine a lot of people enjoy doing. And if we simply said that only do what you want to do, that's not a job that'll get done too often. But uh, so there needs to be some sort of sharing of responsibility and I think a sharing of responsibility responsibility comes from collective decision-making because uh, that is in and of itself authority Uh, and with authority comes that kind of responsibility so everybody has to take up uh, extra responsibility when they get extra liberty that's um, a requirement otherwise you do have chaos but um, ultimately, I don't I don't know the answer to this question. I think um, there will be no lack of scenarios in which it does result in chaotic circumstances. But I also think that if we look to other communities and other cultures and other places around the world, you'll see um, very successful examples. And that's why I think, uh, in terms of, Sabelle, si- uh, earlier you mentioned the word solidarity. And I can't believe that I forgot to mention this word in my first little rant on this, because that is the main principle of not only anarchism, but really any sort of revolutionary thought um, and action. Solidarity is key. But I think that solidarity has to go far beyond simply expressing um, solidarity with other people's struggles. It has to become something with a more solid base. And that means um, communicating, interacting, cooperating, working with other uh, activists, other movements, other people around the world. So I think in terms of figuring out um, better ways forward and organizing from the bottom up, uh, it's necessary to do it locally. uh, But also we need to expand simultaneously our interaction globally. We need to be able to learn from other examples to interact to go to different places and learn what they're doing, and learn what their successes are and what their failures are, and bring that back uh, to our own uh, communities, and to bring people from elsewhere um, to our parts of the world, and and um, see what we can teach them or not. And uh, but ultimately, I think you know there's a certain responsibility being in Western society, uh, being in the dominant uh, imperial society of the world and that's that we really have to reach out to everywhere else on the planet that we have dominated for the past 500 years uh, and you oppressed and impoverished because despite our near continuous domination and ruthless repression of the rest of Earth uh, people have managed to survive and flourish and find uh, even small uh, comforts and happiness in their day-to-day lives and there's something to be learned from there because we have materially so much yet in terms of genuine happiness I find that there's a lot more in poor places of the world than there are in suburban neighborhoods where I grew up uh, and I think that there's something to be learned from that so um, in terms of finding solutions uh, yes they're inside at home Uh, from the ground up but they're also around the world and that we have a certain responsibility to actually um, reach out and uh, learn instead of teach necessarily
3: James? Uh, well, Sabelle, uh you bring up the, the old refrain that I'm sure anyone who has espoused anarchist ideology or, or many other types of ideology has heard a, a million times, which is human nature, human nature, it's human nature, human nature, status quo is human nature. And if that is true, I mean, there's a couple of responses to this. The first, I guess you could say, if the only rubric for measurement of the success of an idea is that it has the kind of stability that we've come to expect from the status quo, then the only system that we could ever advocate is the status quo, and it would be the corporatist, fascist, globalist uh, regime, which has uh, ensconced itself in, in power right now, because that... Democracy. That's been, yeah, yeah, exactly. The representative democracy that the United States so obviously is, right? Because that has persistence. It's persisted for a long period of time, and therefore is compatible with human nature, human nature. I think the more, um, I, I, well, if that were true, then I guess we should all suck our thumbs and go home, because there's nothing we can do about it. But I obviously don't believe that to be true. And I think Andrew absolutely brings up the most important part of this is that we are... All of us, um, so incredibly ensconced in our own cultural context and in the and in the way that we see the world, that uh, it is important to remember that there are other ways of of seeing the world, and that the human human nature is is if not infinitely malleable, at least exceptionally malleable, and usually much more malleable than we uh, would ever think. And I can sp- speak from experience in this, living in the Japanese culture and experiencing that for myself, in which it is certainly very hierarchical, and there certainly are authorities and authority positions, and people respect that. But when it comes to decision-making, it is very much a a society that understands how to reach collective agreement on issues without the need for imposed authority. And if you want to see the example of that, the shining example, uh, it's a documentary that I've recommended before. I will recommend it again. I cannot recommend it strongly enough. It's called Children Full of Life, and it's available for viewing uh, on YouTube. And it's a documentary showing a Japanese... uh, uh, fourth grade class and, and following that class throughout the year as the teacher puts the, the class through various activities in which the children really mo- most often are leading the activities. They're the ones coming to their own understanding of of how to proceed and, and how to reach agreement on various issues and how to find consensus. And in that context, I mean, it is it is truly an amazing thing to watch. And when you watch it, I, I think that gives us the idea, at least the glimmer of an idea, of what a society that's raised to actually understand themselves in that context would look like. I think that those children, if that process were followed all the way up, and unfortunately I can say that not every class here in Japan is like that, but if it were followed, and if that were the norm that was inculcated in our, in our society, I think this idea that we're, oh, it's human nature, we'll all just devolve into fighting factions, and we'll all hate each other, and we'll all be at each other's throats, is not true. It is not true, and it doesn't have to be true. It may be true in our current political and cultural context in the current situation, but it doesn't have to necessarily be true. And again, I think what what we're advocating is not at all a radical thing 95 99% of our uh, interactions in daily life are voluntary and non-hierarchical no one ha- there doesn't have to be any hierarchical authority to tell you how to eat or what to eat or how to dress or who to marry or who to be friends with or uh, perhaps one of the best examples no one there doesn't have to be an authority that tells you um that, you know this is this is the english language and this is exactly what you you know the way that it has to be said there's no there's no authority that there's no institution that decides on any of that. That comes spontaneously through interaction, and uh, it creates a system that's in, itself always in flux. So. I understand everyone wants the consequentialist argument. Everyone wants the well how will this make this society better and just give us the the answer. There is no answer. We have to let go of that idea. There are millions of answers that will come spontaneously through voluntary interaction and I understand that it's a big leap to 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 believe in that and I'm not necessarily even asking people to believe in that. All I'm asking for is for them to respect the ethical principle that voluntary association should be respected. And that's it. And if we respect that basic ethical principle, then we at least have the possibility of living up to our our potential as human beings, as real moral agents. If you take away our ability to voluntarily associate and to withdraw our association when we disagree with someone, then we are not moral agents. We are automatons in uh, acting around at like robots in a system and uh and uh i'm not saying this will be a utopia it will not people will kill people will rape people will murder there will be problems there will be theft there will be ang- anger and and rancor and, and d- destruction Actually, so that what, was I'll- really
0: good you brought up another uh, you, you mentioned human nature as we discussed but one of the words i've been getting a lot from people emailing me or sending notes is you know, you guys are, and that includes me, you are always like aiming for this utopia. And you just mentioned that word. And I I want I want you guys to also get into this because I sometimes feel like, you know, this Christmas story with the island of the misfit toys. You know, with Boiling Frogs Pose is the island of <laughs> Misfit actors who believe in utopia, all of you, you know, you're you guys, you're it's just like okay, that's why we call it irate minority, or at least I called it irate minority. I already accepted that 99% or 98% of people they are not going to, you know, agree with this, and that's perfectly fine with me. But you, uh, you mentioned that word, and that's why I just wanted you to expand upon that and the fact that people basically. Uh, labeling a lot of things that we cover including our farm policy and this particular issue Bitcoin for example we just covered with, uh, with our um, eye-opener video it's like yeah but it's just like you guys always aiming for this utopia and and it's sweet but the real world doesn't work that way you know uh, and 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 that's that's the word that is used and I'm not really playing the devil's advocates but sometimes when I'm asked question or I ask myself questions I get stuck and you're right we don't have to have answers for everything but then let's say you're talking about voluntary associations or voluntary withdrawals I mean how how does it apply to certain things I mean you have a city you have a neighborhood okay and you all collectively decide to put a stop sign because the kids are playing here the cars need to slow down stop because otherwise they are gonna hit these kids well, could should people voluntarily abide by that and say, Well, you know, I don't like the idea of subside, so I'm gonna go through it. And what good does it do really for the community to, to put this together and we are interconnected, but the passerby that are coming from another community that were not part of that decision, they say, you know what? Heck with your subside, I'm going to go through it. I don't agree with it, and there goes your kid, gets hit with the car. I mean what do we really mean by voluntary with uh, with certain things? You know, do we make that okay, we really uh, are opposing and we're saying we will not tolerate, we don't want rape, for example. Would it that be voluntarily people abide by that? You know, you have another community or another city's passers by saying, Well, that's not my law, and I'm going to do that. What would be the consequences for community voluntarily agreeing on things? With some of the people not volunteering to agree with it. Well, how do you go from there? And I know again we said we don't have answers, but these are the types of questions come. And and if we cannot put some of the things within context and real life, you know, situation, again, I use one of those phrases, real life, then we will not even be able to carry these conversations. The other day I was trying to explain to my husband, I said, I have Mixture of the liberal ideas, you know, the socialist mixed with some libertarians. But if I were to use a word, I would say I'm localitarian. I'm a communitarian. I believe I I totally disagree with central government completely, including Federal Reserve. I don't want this federal government, right? I like within communities, the smaller the better, the bottom up, you know, unities like in band, even break it down to the neighborhood. The education, health, a lot of things are also are based on demographics and situations. Let people get together. And so that is my belief. And he threw this question and I went, well, you know, because I didn't have an answer. said, well, unless let's say the entire world does the same thing. okay? this thing that a lot of people are calling utopia. And let's say you have that. You got rid of the central government that you hate, you despise. Fine, we got rid of it. But let's say we have country X that came and said I wanna take over Alaska because I need more oil okay while you have communities how did how we the, the whole community is gonna to get together and defend against something like that when let's say some other countries don't have that kind of what we just talked utopia or or the anarchism in place and and the country your nation the state is under attack and if you don't have that unity because it's a big country Okay. And that is taking place. How would you answer a problem like that? And again, we said we don't have answers. On the other hand, that's an easy way out because we have to be prepared to say, okay, what do we do? Because we have, let's say, this great society, anarchy based voluntarily, but some of our neighbors, some countries like like let's say they decide to act like USA. They don't care about our sovereignty, you know? They just come in there with their planes and tanks and their rockets and they say we want to take over this. Well, how do we respond with a nation this vast? How do you even go through decision making? Well, we have to be able to not offer solutions but start discussing and talking about it because if we can, then it will be true and it will become utopia. Say, well, we don't have answer for this and this and this and this and this and this, but in general, this is the notion. I don't think that, works. I think we should delve even deeper and put it within real life context. Can I, mean, that's- can I take
3: a crack at that? Because I, I think uh, you've raised a, a couple of interesting examples there. Um, Please. And, uh, and the first one, I'll, I'll, it's tangential, um, a tangential way of answering. But uh, when it comes to the stop sign issue, I, I would suggest people go and take a look at my uh, podcast on What About the Roads, talking about the spontaneous order that comes uh, from actually removing all traffic signals, all traffic signs, all of the, uh, the, the, the traffic r- rules and regulations that currently exist. People think it's going to be anarchy, by which they mean chaos. And in fact, in, in the municipalities that they've tried it in and you can go and actually watch and look at the examples. It actually improved the conditions on the road immeasurably because people are not suicidal. They are not insane. They do not want to kill other people generally speaking. They just want to get from A to B and they will uh, actually start to act like human beings um, and allow others to, to pass. That's the kind of trivial tangential way of answering that. On the bigger issue of something like uh, you know Country X or, or Outside Force X coming to invade the, the anarchistic community Y because they want the oil or whatever it is. I, I try to think of that in a real world scenario and I uh, for example I mean I'm here in Japan so' I'm, I'm imagining if suddenly you know a bunch of Russians came and and tried to occupy this this town that I'm living in because they want you know whatever the the gene factories in my area of Japan <laughs> um, I, I can't imagine a, that situation playing out in a way that the people here would not be opposed to that naturally and would not participate in the the, the he, the, the whatever needs to be done, the, the rebuttal, the, the, the getting uh, rid of that, that outside invasion invasionary force. And I suppose there might be people here who would say, you know, whatever, I'm, I'm pacifist, so I'm not going to oppose anyone and they can do anything they want to me and my family. I guess there might be those people around, but I would say that, you know, the vast majority would be on board with that. And I think it's precisely in those times of crisis when there really is a genuine crisis that genuinely threatens the community on a fundamental level... Um, I, I think that's exactly when petty differences between people that generally keep consensus from happening evaporate. That's precisely the moment at which people can come together and say, look, there is a clear, immediate, present threat that we can see that is right here. Let's organize and get rid of it. And I think that's exactly when you would get that type of consensus that but you But by then it
0: will be too late. Shouldn't you be preparing for that? You know, I'm not talking about the Department of Offense we have here. But if you haven't prepared all along before this disaster strikes and have put together in place the, you know, anti-missile stuff in place, et cetera, et cetera, then it's too late. You can, I mean, the the tanks and or whatever, the the planes are there, they are taking over, they are parachuting down there. Maybe by then there are robots. And then at that point, we're going to get together and say, grab the kitchen knives and go there. I mean, that's not going to happen. And if you are looking for this prep period, I mean, aren't we... Again, slowly, you know this thing that Jefferson said said and and I know Andrew addressed that you know the the original founding fathers, and again, that alone itself was also highly class based, but one of the things that Jefferson said, saying, there are a lot of problems with what we have put in. it's not perfect; it's as close as we could come at this point." But it needs to change, meaning he meant anarchy. I mean, he was an incredible anarchist, Jefferson. He said, you need to turn this upside down and start all over again, all the time. Because no matter what we put in place in in terms of solution and guidelines or whatever the consensus that they had, yes, they were the slave owners back then, but it's going to be temporary. And it's going to corrupt itself. It's going to rot. That's why it, you need to throw it and start all over again. You can't put this place concrete, whether it's the Constitution or these laws. And
3: Sorry, Sabelle, we just lost your audio. I'm not trying to cut you off, but <laughs> we just lost your audio. All right, Andrew, would you like to respond to what Sabelle was saying there?
2: Uh, sure. Um, uh, well, first of all, I take a little uh, problem with Jefferson being referred to as an anarchist, but I'll leave that for another discussion. Um I think the, I, I totally agree that the idea of some outside militaristic power <laughs> the United States, excuse me, um, coming in to destroy communities uh, doing this is a very real potential threat. After all, that is essentially the history of anarchist movements is being destroyed by uh, capitalist, communist, so-called communist, and fascist states. Uh, that's one reason why I think that for anarchism to be actual, uh, actually realized and successful. Um, it is a process rather than an ideology. It is a process that has to be um, undertaken globally simultaneously. Uh, in other words, the notion that there is a powerful neighboring state um, is anathema to um, a successful anarchist society because anarchist societies... Uh, would not be confined within state structures uh, because they reject the notion of a state structure and when you get to very powerful military states um, the actual military apparatus is something that needs to be addressed uh, very quickly I might add you know in terms of the United States I don't think there's many uh, actual physical um, occupations that are required uh, except perhaps, for the Pentagon, um, you know, and similar institutions like this. Like, these are, um, uh, the military aspect of the state is something that has to be dismantled and has to be dismantled very quickly. And that has to be a priority of any um, attempts at creating an anarchistic society because that very institution itself is uh, not only a big threat, but it's contradictory um, to... Uh, an anarchistic society, and it will, it will, and I completely agree with you. It will destroy it uh, by any means necessary, and that's something that people have to keep in mind. When it, if it comes to an anarchistic uh, society being invaded by an outside power, um, there's really only so much that that society can do. Like you mentioned, Sibel, it's you know, what are they going to do? Go with kitchen knives to fight F sixteen fighter uh, jets? You know, it's not very realistic. Um, And, I mean, one doesn't really need to look much further than the occupied territories to really get an understanding of that kind of situation and what it uh, results in. And there you have, you know, a large open-air prison um, and uh, horrific repression, and the world is essentially sitting and watching this uh, happen. And uh, unless the world, uh, and I guess more specifically, I should say, uh, the Western world, the industrialized powerful world, unless we actually go through a change in uh, not only understanding but values, um, these situations can 't be addressed realistically. Uh, you mentioned uh, rape. what if somebody comes by and says that doesn 't you know saying no rape is not not for me. I like to rape. imagine if you know somebody comes by and says that it, well how do people deal with that? Uh, ultimately, I think that for an anarchistic society to be constructed, um, for the circumstances, first of all, uh, to exist, which would prompt people to develop an anarchistic society, and for the uh, slow construction of that society, um, I don't think that the um, idea uh, of rape would be held legitimate by anyone. Um be- Precisely because it would require um, a type of change or transformation in the culture uh, and in people's psychology um, and in how they interact with people. Because after all, if you look at the actual concept of rape, it's not about sex, it's about power. And it's about one person um, overtaking someone else by exerting their power over them in a particularly ruthless and violent way. Um, That's... The basis of a great deal of violence in this world, and uh, rape is one very specific manifestation of that. But it's a power struggle, and that's that's where its roots are. It's in this problem, this issue of power that we don't know how to address in our society. And I think that if you look at, there was a radical psychologist named Rollo May, and he articulated an understanding, a psychological understanding of power, whereby he said that um, there are two things in this world which create major psychological issues related to power. One is too much power concentrated. um, So people who have too much authority and power, um, that leads to devastating consequences for people, which I'm sure we can all agree with. The other is too little power uh, on the part of other people. So it leads to desperate reactions, responses. So again, you look at Israel-Palestine, too much power on the part of Israel in the state, you look how that results. Too little power on the part of the Palestinian people who are dispossessed. Look at how um, reactions take place when you saw, you know, suicide bombings. These are reactions of the uh, desperate. These are not uh, solutions to their problems. They're reactions to the situation. And that's about disempowerment. Uh, An anarchistic society is about uh, equality of power. So it it would fundamentally, I think, reduce these problems um, by essentially socializing power uh, and with that responsibility. Um, And uh, that would completely change the culture uh, and how people interact. And so I think that that is, while not an answer or solution um, in terms of uh, the specific question of how would these people react in this circumstance. I think that these circumstances would be questionable um, if we were to actually have an anarchistic society. If tomorrow uh, suddenly anarchistic societies were to be, uh, forgive the contradiction, but imposed upon all of Western society, um, I do agree with you that uh, it would be chaos uh, and it would not work. Uh, these things have to develop over time, and they certainly take their time. Uh, and um, I think that the circumstances are fundamentally what will change this. And in the Western world, our circumstances, as you all know, and I'm sure most of the listeners know, are rapidly changing. Uh, we're undergoing deindustrialization, mass impoverishment, which we call austerity, um, the construction of high tech police states. Uh, These are very concerning trends that we are uh, running uh, forward with as fast as we possibly can, not to mention uh, rapidly accelerating environmental degradation. Um, These are all major issues, but as the effects of these trends continue to hit home, and they're starting slowly, but you know they accumulate over time, circumstances have a way of changing people. Just like you mentioned in terms of the catastrophe being the circumstance in which these things work best. Well, when our society is in essentially a permanent state of catastrophe, um, that's a circumstance in which uh, you can see um, the beginnings of something possibly develop. Um, in a more organized, functional basis, and when the culture itself and the psychology of people will change. Alternatively, you also have the major problems that come with this. If you look at Greece, you have the development of you know a- really strong anarchist movements and other social movements coming out of Greece, but then you also have fascism, um, and that's because in these circumstances, uh, fascists rise really quickly because they provide simple answers uh, to complex questions. And because they take power, they usurp power, Uh, and they say, we'll get you food, we'll get you employment. And for a lot of people who, um, you know, I remember reading interviews uh, of people in Greece who identified historically as socialists, but when the Golden Dawn came to their house and said here's some food for your starving family, they said, I never thought I would be voting for a fascist party, but here I am because they're actually helping me. Circumstances can change that.
3: Exactly. The stability of the status quo is what those types of groups offer very well. And uh, the radical solution is obviously much more uh, difficult. So I hate to be the party pooper, but I'm coming up against another interview that I'll have to conduct in a few minutes. And we seem to have lost Peter... Has yes. seemed to have dropped from this conversation for some technical reason or other, or maybe he just got so offended he had to hang up. <laughs> but uh, but let's let's just close up with uh, with some closing comments. There's no possible way to summarize or close a conversation like this, and there's much much more that needs to be said about this on all these different fronts. On my own front, I guess I will just um, I will just say that perhaps there's a different way of approaching these questions because obviously, I understand, I truly understand that everyone wants the, the how. How will this work? How will we do that? How will that happen? It's a very important question to think about because, again, that will be the primary b- bone of contention. That will be the primary thing that people think and talk about in an anarchistic society. But I think perhaps more to the point of what I want to stress, which is, again, the ethical, um, uh, uh, the ethical dilemma here, which is, uh, what should happen if I don't agree with you? So, for example, in the example of the invasion s- uh, scenario, um, I-, I agree. Yeah, we do have to be prepared for some sort of, you know, a threat of, of various s- sorts. And again, in the example of whatever, the Russians coming to occupy my town, again, it's a very real threat. It's imminent. I understand it. I I agree that this needs to stop. So I will work together with other people to make it stop. Um, but uh, and, and I also agree that we need to be prepared for that. So we need to associate and some way to to prepare against threats but if someone wants to convince me that i should be afraid of iran and therefore i i need to give a portion of my money every single month to some structure governmental institution whatever in order to build big anti-missile defenses to protect me from iran if i don't agree with that i fundamentally don't agree with that What should happen to me? And in the society that we're in, I will be thrown in a cage uh, and basically left there to rot if I refuse to pay my tribute to the government that wants to protect me from these threats, which are not threats. So so again, it comes back fundamentally for me to the ethical principles involved. And that's where I continue to go back to because it is not a consequentialist argument for me. I do believe that the world would be structured and, and would actually have a more reasonable structure in anarchism than otherwise. But that, again, is not the basis of my argument. My argument is what should happen to those who do not wish to go along with this system. And then uh, that's where I, I continue to bring it back to. I'll stop there. Cybele.
0: I know we lightly mentioned the word of human nature. I, I believe uh, we need to have this as part one, part two, part three, part four, because I I with, like many things, I don't like to approach it from either philosophical uh, angle or from the sociological angle because they are also connected. So there's a psychological element in there, sociological, anthropological, and, and, and if we disregard or, or like we do with econ classes you hold this constant you hold b constant all these variables are constant so you're only dealing with two variables and most of the time life doesn't work that way so it is important to approach some of these questions some of these uh, aspects that we just discussed today in in under all four umbrellas and that is you know human nature all human nature because even with that we can have hours and hours of discussion or what uh, Andrew just mentioned about okay rape being about all about power well that's a hypothesis or a theory okay and that's one of this school of psychologists I got a degree in psychology and all I got was lots of confusion at the end but I, I think uh, it is very, very highly, highly, highly important. I can't emphasize it enough to, to, to continue this discussion and put it, uh, you know, under different uh, aspects of, you know, besides philosophical, political, anthropological, and, and then have in the end have some kind of a more holistic whole approach. To it. And, and I truly enjoyed it. And your uh, podcast, Andrew, was really thought provoking. I just could tell by all the emails that were pouring in. And one of the greatest things that it accomplished was, and, and that includes even myself, because when I listen to it, it's like, you are right. that the, the term anarchy has been, and I think part of it is absolutely intentional. I remember growing up in Turkey, the uh, military regime in the 80s kept saying, you know, if we don't support us, you'll be back to that anarchy period where the bombs were blowing off and the mini bosses. And that is one of the words that the Turks in Turkey are most afraid of. Oh no, don't give us anarchy because to them, anarchy is violence and terrorism and people coming and mugging their houses, etc., etc. And the authorities use that big time and the fact that you don't support us, you'll be back in anarchy and you'll see what's going to happen to you. So that was one of the main things that it uh, it uh, brought about your podcast. A lot of people with that misconception generalization about anarchy. So I hope we'll continue this topic and uh, again with Peter back as well and here, Mo, and, uh, and take it further.
2: Andrew? Um, A scientist who studies mice and experiments with mice thinks that he's understanding the effects of his experiments on a mouse. But what he's understanding is the effects of of experiments on a mouse that's been kept in a cage, locked in a dark room, going crazy by itself. Um, That's not the nature of the mouse. That's the nature of a mouse locked in a cage and made crazy. Um, humans are kept in our social cages, our institutions define our society, our ideologies define the institutions, how we interact, how we relate. This is how we define what we call human nature. I think the process and the result of breaking down the walls, breaking down the maze that the mouse is running through, um, will allow us to actually discover what human nature is. And I think the process of doing that, the result of doing that, that is what I call anarchism.
3: Well said. Well, that could perhaps be the launching point for the next conversation, because as you say, I think we will have to have many more on this. And since our host is not here to lead us out, I guess that will be my job. Of course, once again, I hope that people will check out the individual websites of the people involved. Of course, Peter B. Collins at peterbcollins.com, Andrew Gavin Marshall at andrewgavinmarshall.com. Am I correct in that? Yep. Yes. Okay. And the com. Yes. Okay. <laughs> I always have to check. And, of course, Sabelle Edmonds at BoilingFrogsPost.com. I'm James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. Thank you for joining us. And as always, add your voice to this mix in the comment section of the YouTube and or Boiling Frogs Post comment sections. Looking forward to your feedback and looking forward to round two. Until then, thanks for listening.
2: Dot com. <laughs> <laughs>